Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Love them or hate them, our significant others can be the biggest triggers of stress in our lives. In today's episode of The Bravery Academy, I'm joined by Dr. Victoria Thompson, a clinical psychologist on The Bravery Academy. She's going to be sharing some insights around attachment theory and how you can build deeper connections in the relationships you have. Whether you are head over heels in lust or in love or single and ready to mingle, this episode is going to help you build deeper connection with yourself and with others. Welcome back, Vic. So I've got lots of questions for you today, and I think we should just dive in and look at why in the first place do we choose to partner up? Um, well, I'm happy to be back. Thanks for having me again. It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Why is it that we partner up in the ways that we do? I mean, you can take it way back to, you know, evolution and, and why it is that we mate for such long periods um whereas like other animals they think maybe it's just you know the one and done um, <laughs> why why do we partner up for so long well the research kind of suggests that it's to keep a bond between two people so that the father of the children because obviously you know mating and it's a consequence yeah <laughs> is to have children and so it's about keeping the father around so that he kind of has some buy-in to want to help to support to raise the children. And of course, over time, our relationships and why we have them has changed. Mm. You know, pre-industrial revolution, it was all about money and family exchanges and land and property where marriages weren't based on love, but rather on convenience and reward for both of the families. And then, of course, changed with industrial revolution and people moving away from families so it's really changed even now like the research i was reading around it were people are choosing to partner up much later yeah. and to stay single later like the stats from the u.s were in the 1990s like 29 percent of people were single or unpartnered and now it's around like 38 percent so it's gone mm. up you know 10 percent and a lot of them were males choosing to stay unpartnered and the research is showing that independence is more important now mm. than again that evolutionary need to have somebody beside us to support if we were 
starting a family because family units are very different as well, what we're looking at in our modern lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite fascinating, really. I mean, for women, the expectation now that we also have careers and putting those as our primary focus in a lot of cases. I think it's also interesting to think about the impact of like Hollywood on relationships and perhaps that our expectations for what relationships look like or what our concept of love is has changed as well is that perhaps we're wanting more and more and of course there's positives about that that we should strive to have good partners but at the same time our expectations just a little bit too high that mean that we can't settle or we find it hard to partner up. I think that's a really good point there's a few factors right there's the modern day dating as well that I think after going through divorce myself and coming out after being with my partner, oh gosh, I've lost track now, I think it was about 13, 14 years, mm-hmm. coming out in my mid-30s to then go, oh my goodness, what does this relationship scene look like? That was a really big, big aha moment, and I'll talk about yeah. that later, I think. But also this pace of, I don't think we've really taught how to be in a good relationship. And this is, again, why I want to talk about this in this podcast, because the relationships can be good stress and they can be bad stress, right? Mm. And it really does affect your well-being. The stats on that are massive. If you are in a satisfied relationship in your 50s, then you're more likely to be healthy and active in your 80s. A doctor should be actually asking, are you happy in their consults? That's actually more predictive of their health and well-being later in their age than cholesterol. Wow. So so we're not actually looking at the impact and the stats around if you are in a happy relationship also impact that body physically as well. And this is why I've been finding fascinating because there's been some really good research done over several years. There was the Harvard study that looked at happiness for years and years and years. And it was started with males, the research, and then they added family members and partners and stuff over time. And what they found was that the the happiness scores on, in their satisfaction in their marriage was the reason why they, again, were either living for longer uh, and they felt less depression. There was less alcohol and addiction in it because they were in these happier relationships. Mm-hmm. And again, so I go, well, how do we cultivate these relationships? What is going to influence who we choose and how we partner up? Because I think there's elements from our upbringing whether we've had a good example, it doesn't mean that that's going to be our experience. Totally. And and having a really positive modeling can also be a hindrance. Yeah. You know, that you expect that your story will look similar to that of your parents. Mm. And what happens for people when it doesn't, when you notice that you have to work slightly harder than your parents seem to have worked or questions around what were my parents showing and what was behind the scenes, and that perhaps the modelling has actually put too high of an expectation on what my relationship should look like. Mm. I think that's such a good point. My parents just hit 50 years married, mm-hmm. and that's a huge milestone. I look at it now from my experience of going through what I think maybe a relationship should be, and it's still quite different as we go through different generations. And now that I'm in a post-divorce relationship and partnered up, I just keep having all these moments of learning from what relationships are about. And I guess that's what I want to ask you is, you know, in your opinion, what do you see as the cornerstones of a healthy relationship? Well, what springs to mind and what I see people most often for is breakdowns in communication. I think to me that that is the most important facet of a relationship without 
healthy communication, it's really hard for the relationship to thrive because no matter how great your relationship is, you will have moments of conflict and you should, and you should have moments of breakdowns in the relationship. It's not going to be smooth sailing all the time, but it's not about the conflict. It's about how you repair it. And without the ability to communicate and work together as a team, it's so hard for people to move forward. And of course, you know, there is interesting research as well from Gottman Institute, who are world renowned for couples work, couples therapy, psychological theory around relationships. And they talk about the four horsemen. So those are these four constructs that they suggest that people look for in their relationships and they're kind of markers that your relationship is is starting to move in an unhealthy direction. Now I gotta rattle these off from my yeah. <laughs> I think I got them. The first of them being contempt, mm-hmm. second being defensiveness, the third being criticism, and the fourth being come on Emma, have you got this one? No, but I could it's all coming back to me. It's all coming back to me. Defensiveness. And okay, I'm gonna have withdrawal. Ah, stonewalling. Stonewalling. Yes, you're right. Stonewalling. So yes, similar to withdrawal. So stonewalling meaning withdrawing from your partner, refusing to engage in kind of communication with them. And I'm sure for a lot of people listening, that's something that that, that they've experienced is this trying to connect with a partner and feeling like they're being stonewalled not being heard and it's such a painful experience yeah I think that's a really good point that when we're not being supported or nurtured it feels like we are in that isolation mode and we can be in relationship but be the loneliest we've ever been and I definitely felt that in my marriage at many times and ironically now we communicate much better my ex-husband and I and and a joke that he was the right man to marry and Mm -hmm. divorce (laughs) because he's such a good person in many ways. But there was these elements that we both had to go through these growth phases to actually get to this point of going, okay, how do we be in a relationship now as divorcees Mm. (laughs) or as people that are both co-parenting so that we can navigate this next stage? And we still have those tough moments, but we've figured out how to go through that now so it's just fascinating, like you said, the reason why people get to those points of frustration and when they're coming into you to get therapy mm. and to be at that cornerstone of things aren't good is because of those four horsemen. Sometimes we get so stuck in our communication patterns and we are driven by what you know what we call in psychology, like emotion mind, so those impulsive, emotionally driven responses where we can actually respond in ways to our partner that are not in line with who we want to be. That can be really troubling, not only for your partner, but also for your perception of self. What is the reason why that frustration is occurring? I think frustration is a normal part of relationships. Most of our interpersonal relationships, if you think about your work colleagues or your children, you get (laughs) frustrated at times because it's human experience to become frustrated. Of course, there are things that over time in relationships can happen. You know, if if you are constantly feeling not heard or criticized or taken for granted, over time, frustration can build. But the actual notion of being frustrated at points in the week with your partner is normalcy. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, 
was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. One of my questions was around the influence of our upbringings then. Mm. How does that affect our relationships? So we have to talk about attachment theory, right? And it's becoming such a popular mm-hmm. theory. I've seen loads of it on social media. There is, of course, that, that amazing book called Attached. Yes, um, loved it. Loved it. So good. You should <laughs> read it if you're listening. But I think it's such a great thing for people to understand more about is what is your own attachment style? So when we talk about attachment style, we mean that the relationships that we have to others. So our attachment style is formed quite early on. It's formed with our primary caregiver. And so what we would hope as children is that we have a secure base, secure primary caregiver that we know is safe and we can go from there and explore the world. So for example, you're at the park with your mum, say she's your primary caregiver, and you know that you, little you, can go off and run and play on the slide or play with a friend. But you notice how children often come back and just kind of check to see where mum is or check in with mum. It's the idea that she is the secure base from which you can go and explore the world. And so that is, you know, kind of the ideal, that that secure base. But it's, of course, not always the case for people. Sometimes people might have a more absent mother. So when the kid comes back, the mum is off somewhere else. She's gone back to the car. I don't know. But the idea is that they start to learn over time that that mum's not always around. She's not always reliable. Well, you may get the other end of the spectrum, which is more of an anxious parent, where you're going off to play on the slide and she's like, oh my gosh, be careful, be careful, it's not safe, and I'll come with you. And so she doesn't allow you to go and explore the world and come back to her. She's just always there. So that's kind of a, a bit of a general explanation, but 
it's maybe a useful one to understand a little bit about how our attachment styles can form. We develop that over time and it doesn't just happen in our childhood. We can have relationships as well that can influence our attachment style. If we go through a very turbulent relationship, it's likely that that too would influence your attachment style, perhaps make you a little more anxious. And so we tend to have these three or four attachment styles as adults that you will see in your friends or people you've dated, that you might be able to kind of identify some of them and and for yourself as well. The most common one being secure. So most people are pretty securely attached. And that means that you're able to have relationships, you're able to commit, to rely on someone else, but also be able to go off and do your own thing, to communicate freely and know that, yeah, we're all right. We're pretty good. You're not sort of overly worried about the future of the relationship. And you're also happy to spend time with them and make future plans. And that's it's sort of nice, secure attachment. On another side, we can get something called anxious attachment. And that's for when people experience what we call preoccupation with the relationship. So that's when you're really, really worried about whether they like you, whether they're going to stay with you, whether they might leave. You might really not want to be spending much time by yourself. You always want to be around them because if you're around them, you know that they're there and they're not leaving. And and the other side is the avoidant style of attachment where you have quite a lot of fear about losing your own independence, being able to rely on other people. So you try and put in place quite a big distance between you and your partner. And although you may have feelings that you want to commit and connect on a deeper level it's this kind of fear inside you where you're just so fearful of relying on someone else and the unfortunate thing is that anxious attachment and avoidant attachment seem to love to get together um yeah and we get that anxious avoidant trap which is where you get one person with an anxious attachment style one person with an avoidant attachment style and what happens is you have the avoidant person pulling away because they're so fearful of the connection or the trust Mm. and the anxious person so fearful of being left. And so then they keep coming towards, uh, the avoidant person is pulling away. And then what tends to happen is the anxious person will retreat. Yeah. Because they'll go, okay, this is too much for me. And eventually they'll retreat. And then the avoidant person gets the space that they so desperately crave. And they say, Oh, actually, you know, I know I do actually want to connect with that person and they'll kind of get back together for a little bit or reconnect for a little bit and the trap will play out again. You're nodding. I know it seems familiar. Yeah, I, I'm so nodding because I remember again after the divorce for me, I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do this better because I don't want to go through this. And so yeah. I did a lot of research and reading around and including the attached book and, and understanding the impact of that. And then it came really prevalent in talking to my clients. The ones that were struggling with body reactions and the mind contributing to that and the relationships was a huge stressor in it. And so when we began to look at the way that, that their upbringing and the way that they were dealing with relationships was contributing to it, it became really obvious who had mm-hmm. these secure, avoidant and anxious attachment. I remember reading, and I think it was in the attached book, that 50% of people were secure and most of them then partner up at that early stage and then they stay together which is like it's great for everybody else but when you come back in the dating pool in your 30s and your 40s and you see who's on there it's like they're the anxious and avoidant ones out there so you're looking at going 
okay, well, why aren't you with somebody for long periods? Why haven't you been able to have a secure relationship? Mm. And it's been fascinating. Like I saw dating in some ways post-divorce as an experiment of humans because it really is. It's about listening to people and hearing their stories, but you know, you're trying to figure out what, what's happened in their lives to contribute to the way that they choose to connect or communicate. And I remember feeling the boomerang of men that were like, oh no, I don't know if I want any of this. And it seemed really mm. common to find the avoidant behavior. Yeah. And I think it does say in that book that you're just much more likely to bump into an avoidant person in the dating pool because they're more frequently yep. in it. And people with that style might tend to move from sort of honeymoon period to honeymoon period to honeymoon period, <laughs> fearful that when that honeymoon period starts to end, that the reality of relationships, which is like hard work, yep. means that that person's not right for them. And I think that's probably something that most of us can relate to that idea of like, gosh, I have to work hard here. Does that mean that this is not right for me? So I think we can all sympathize with that kind of view of it all. But yes, it does mean that if you're in the dating pool, particularly when we're in our 30s, 40s plus, that there are quite a lot of avoidant people in there. But the smart thing to do, like you did, is just to develop awareness of your own style. Mm -hmm. What are your needs? If you are more avoidant, it's about doing some work around that because if you're wanting a long-term relationship, it's really helpful to know that there is a part of that that makes you very, very fearful. I don't know if I'd want to be, and even though I'm in my 40s now, I don't know if I want to be dating in my 20s now. It feels a really big difference. Yeah, I think it's just the availability as well. You know, with dating apps, there's, they are so great. And most people tend to meet through those apps these days, at least in in my experience. You can make some amazing connections, but it's also overwhelming. And there is some pretty interesting research about how that awareness of how many potential partners there are influence our choosing so that we may not actually settle as easily because we know that we could start swiping again and there's someone else and maybe they're just slightly better for us. Yes. The reality being that, of course, you know, you're know, you just going to find someone else that, yeah, maybe you could connect, but you're still going to have problems. It's never going to be the perfect relationship. And that is often what we're looking for is like, you know, that age old question of like, well, could I be happier? You know, Esther Perel's research, she talks a lot about that, the idea of, am I happy enough? Could I be happier? And when do you draw a line and go, okay, well, actually, this relationship feels good enough for me. It's got good bones. We've got good communication. We care about each other. We're a good team. Maybe, yeah, maybe this part of them could be better or this part of our relationship could be better. But is this good enough? Is this a good enough foundation to work on? I've had moments where I can feel myself getting caught in where I'm like, oh, I need to say something because it doesn't feel right. Like it doesn't feel right. And I've learned that I can't hold those things in. And so I've got to figure out how to communicate those in a way that's going to be received. And so mm-hmm. there are so many different tools out there that you can use. Like you said, when communication is failing, that's what I'd love mm-hmm. to hear from you is like, how do people do that? How do we go, well, I'm frustrated and I'm angry or I'm upset. You know, how do I just not blurt it out so that they know that I'm upset? There's different mm-hmm. ways of sharing it, right? Yeah. And I mean, look, None of us are perfect. We're all human beings and we all get into places where we react emotionally and we regret what we've said. You know, this is my job and I have a moments in my life where I do that. Um, You're not perfect. I'm not. 
It doesn't feel good. And, and it's a good learning experience to go, gosh, what happened for me there that I said something that really doesn't feel helpful or it feels like we became separated and we started attacking each other instead of being on the same team. So I suppose maybe that's where I'll start is the idea of remembering that you and your partner are a team. Mm. And when we think about conflict, which we've said, you know, will inevitably show up, is trying to approach conflict as a team rather than what we can slip into, which is attacking each other where you both feel like you want to win or get the last word. And what my supervisor always says to me is, Victoria, if one person wins in the relationship, then no one wins because that's not the point. The point is that you approach things as a team and a unit. So I guess what is helpful when thinking, okay, great idea, Victoria, but how do I go into conflict as a team? I think one of the best pieces of advice is to actually listen to what your partner is saying. Because what we can do is when our partner is relaying how they're feeling, in our head, we can be thinking about a rebuttal. So we're so hyper-focused on, okay, well, actually, no, that was on Wednesday and he said it was on Tuesday, <laughs> whatever it was, that we're not actually hearing what they're saying. Because whether it is Wednesday or Tuesday is irrelevant. The point is that people need to be heard and they should be heard. And so thinking about, okay, I'm noticing this need for me to try and do a rebuttal here. Let me focus in on what they're actually saying. Because otherwise you're just shouting at each other. And no one's hearing what the other person's saying. How do you expect to find resolution in that environment? Yeah, I think that's the best advice, actually. Listen first. Mm. There's some great research exploring this in relationships like the heartfelt listening or nonviolent communication, the NVC work by Marshall mm. Rosenberg, and his work around conflict resolution. And once you've really been heard, then you can go, oh, okay, well, then what do you need? So mm. you begin to have a conversation which is about empathetic listening and that is an art of itself and it needs to be practiced daily and I find I do this with my children when I practice that hey this is what I'm hearing they just feel safer and then there's that secure attachment comes through as you nurture this communication connection it's such a de-escalation yep. tool as well it just brings down the tension it feels so validating when they can repeat back to you their interpretation of what you've said, even if yep. they're not 100% on the money and they can ask for clarity. So, yeah, I think there's a great skill is uh, learning to summarize when your partner is relaying something to you is to actually summarize it back. Like, okay, this is kind of what I've got from what you're saying. Have I got this right? It's a beautiful moment when you feel like this conflict is about to escalate in the room and then you just start putting in those skills of listening and repeating it back and summarizing, it just brings everything down and you're able a little bit more to try and engage in problem solving together. Another one is about I statements, taking responsibility for your own feelings instead of what we can get into, which is when you do this, you make me feel because our feelings are our own responsibility. When you do this, I feel. It's a very simple shift, isn't it, in language, but it can be very powerful to remove that criticism, which is, like you said, one of the horsemen that's going to cause that disconnect in the first place. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just subtle shifts in the way that we communicate 
to foster more respect, more kindness. So we've kind of jumped ahead because how do you go from dating then to partnership, right? How do you go from, okay, I'm going to meet you for a coffee to then suddenly feeling trusting to be a wee exclusive? So what is your advice people that are seeking partnership in relationships and how to navigate that time? Yeah, and look, I think dating is really, really hard, especially in modern society. You know, if you are struggling with dating, know that you're not alone, that this is a really challenging thing for people who are in the dating pool. What's my advice? Well, what can happen when we're single is this idea that it means that we're not good enough, that if other people are coupled up, well, what does that mean about me? And that must mean that I am not worthy of love. And for many of us, we have those deep-rooted beliefs anyway, from probably from childhood. And so being single or struggling to find someone to build a long-term relationship with can be really awful because we can perpetuate those beliefs that we are not enough. So I think it's really helpful to be aware of that. Of course, it's not reality. You are enough, but sometimes it just takes a little bit more time to find connection. So I think that one of the best things that you can do for yourself is foster some self-compassion on that journey and trying to remind yourself that, hey, I am good enough. And, you know, it will happen for me, but I just have to try and tolerate the uncertainty and the self-criticism that's going to come along with this. It's helpful not to engage in, you know, this is easy to say, but to work on not engaging in social comparison, especially in Instagram age, seeing other people post about the seemingly perfect relationships. Relationships, 100%. Oh my gosh, it's so stressful. You can't do that. But engage in comparison. Like, oh gosh, they just bought a house or oh, they've got engaged and they've been together less time than me or, or oh, I don't actually really like that person. How is it that she's engaged and I'm not? The judger comes in, yep. The judger comes <laughs> in and it's hard. So trying to remind yourself that, hey, even if you get into a relationship, it doesn't mean that suddenly you're going to find happiness, you know, that it's also going to be hard work. So it's a, a kind of a pick your poison thing at times, you know. It's hard work either end and People aren't happy all the time in their relationships, no matter how it seems on Instagram. Another piece of advice is to do what you did, Emma, is to learn your attachment style and think about, hey, what it is that I actually need. Because we spend a lot of time focused on trying to get people to like us that we forget. It's like, oh, actually, do I even like you? Do you even have the same value system as I do? Mm. Can you meet my needs in terms of, what kind of communication works for me or the frequency of seeing each other? Are you able to meet my needs there? I think that that's probably would be things that I would focus on. So self-compassion, avoiding social comparison and learning about your own attachment style and your needs and your values and to try and implement, you know, some understanding on those first few dates of what is this person's attachment style like? What are their value system? And do we actually align here? Or am I going to end up in a situation of, you know, the anxious avoidant trap perhaps? Absolutely. I think what we're talking about there is that rejection sensitivity in dating, right? Mm. So that rejection sensitivity is what triggers that stress response as well in the early dating days. And that can be strong for you if you've been through trauma in the past as well. One thing that really spoke to me was when you're going through that phase is build your world outside Mm. of having anybody else in it. We need to go, 
what things fill up my cup and bring me joy without somebody else in it. So then when that right person comes along, they don't take that away. I Mm. know what's important. So for me, I was very clear that I wanted to make sure that I built my adventures after divorce. And it meant going overnight hiking by myself, which I'd never really done before. And climbing mountains, again, not the most normal, realistic thing for everyone to do <laughs> when you go post-divorce. But in my head, I was like, I need to figure out what it feels like to be me and to be curious because that identity gets challenged. Mm-hmm. You know, who am I without being married? Who am I with not being a mother full-time because I don't get that anymore? This is not the story that I thought I was going to have. So there's a lot of shifting and grief in relationships as well. So I think that rejection sensitivity is a normal common reaction. But you can also desensitize that in normal day-to-day life. I had, I loved hearing this thing in the Imperfects podcast and the lady who's done a lot of research on this. She was like, you can actually test yourself through the day and just smile at everybody going past. And not everybody will smile back, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's like because they've got stuff going on in their lives. We always think, oh, what did I do? And it's like sometimes it's what's happening in their world that means that they're not receptive to you. When we're talking about that communication in that partnership, when you're having those active listening conversations, watching our body language is so important, right? Yeah, it's a good one. Because <laughs> we don't realize how much that is projecting, am I going to feel safe with you or am I going to feel challenged with you? Yeah. And I will shut myself down or I will open myself up. And am I going to listen if your body language is in anger? mode it's like I'm not going to want to have a conversation that makes me feel safe yeah right and they're not going to be able to have a conversation that feels safe when their body language is so tensed up is it such a really great point is that that skill of actually opening up being able to hear because otherwise we will escalate if we keep ourselves in that tensed up position ready to kind of fight or flight. Mm. A lot of the work that I do has always had breathing as a base, as a pillar of it, because that's one of the easiest ways to regulate the nervous system. Mm. But you can't breathe your way through stuff. You've actually got to then connect with the mind and the the emotions, Mm. which is why I'm always like, you can't just do 10 minutes of breathing and expect that's going to sort your shit out, basically. How do they shift their body language to open Mm. up for somebody else to feel safe? Because we have more power in that that we realize whether it's in our work our family like our children they are reading us like an absolute book day in day out i remember hearing nathan wallace and he talks a lot on children and on the neuropsychology of it all and i remember him talking about that teenagers only read two emotions it's either like happy or angry off you no <laughs> and i was like oh so we've really got to change when they're at that stage so the same thing's happening with our partners. They're reading yeah. our emotions and we think we're putting this like, oh, I'm fine mask up. You know, like everything is absolutely fine. Of course I like when you do that, but we're not actually expressing ourselves. Our body will express our dissatisfaction and our mm-hmm. unhappiness. And again, that's when the body will keep the score. And we look at the evidence around relationships. You could be in these long-term relationships, but be unhappy that has a huge impact on your body. And like for women, I think it was an article in 2021 that made me go, okay, so we often think that women don't get as impacted with heart issues. It's mm-hmm. often more the hormonal stuff that they might get impacted or cancer. But actually this article in the Journal of American Heart Association, the women that had reported higher levels of social strain, so stress in relationships, were more likely to have heart attacks or die at the 15-year follow-up mark. Massive. And then the other one that got me is because I do work with a lot of women that have been in these states of stress for a long period. 
mm-hmm. is that in 2019, an article in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health found that, again, high levels of social stress meant that they had lower levels of bone density six years later. So the stress increases of cortisol, which would then be linked to bone mm-hmm. thinning. So we look at this and we go, well, all these diseases and illnesses that we have, we're not treating the root cause, which mm-hmm. is how our body regulates. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why relationships are such a key pillar in this. Yeah, I mean, you spend most of your time with them. So <laughs> you want to have a reasonable level of happiness. I think that, of course, I think happiness it fluctuates. I think that you can have seasons in relationships where you don't feel as happy and then periods where you feel like, yeah, we're actually doing okay. So I, I think it's such a nuanced experience. I think what you're saying there is that happiness, where that really resonates for me is when I looked at the research into happiness and there's some great work out there on happiness, is that it's not all like clear and cut. 40% of happiness comes from our choices. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to figure out, well, what am I doing to help shift my happiness dial? As long as you see relationships as adventure, then that can bring levels of stress down and can be where we can grow and cultivate more connections through life. Thanks, Dr. Vic. I appreciate you coming on and I'm looking forward to having you on uh, next episodes talking about family. Families. Family <laughs> stress, which I'm yeah. pretty sure we'll go back to a bit of attachment theory on that one. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> we hope today's episode has shown that you can get control of the way that you deal with stress. We also know that some of the episodes will be triggering. You can reach out for help. That first action of reaching out may be the most difficult thing you do, but also the catalyst for getting the support that you need. You can talk to your local doctor. You can talk to friends and family that you trust. And if you need to, you can also reach out to local hotlines. In New Zealand, that number is 1737. We'll also put some resources into the show notes. You can also take a few of the breathing quizzes on my website, www.thebreatheffect.com, and I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can take the breathing quiz, find out a bit more about how your body's reacting to stress, and check out any of my free resources there as well that you might be interested in. You can reach out if you'd like to work with me, whether it's one-on-one coaching, whether it's in your business, whether it's coming and joining us in Bali or in New Zealand on our retreats. And maybe it's just a note to say, hey, this is what I'd like to learn more about. Whatever it is, please reach out. In this podcast, we will continue to celebrate the courage to explore, learn and grow. Never underestimate the power you have to shift the world, foster hope and create connection. There's the simple things that you do every day that add up, including the way that you breathe, the way that you move and the way that you think. So take a moment and shift one of those things today. <laughs>